0: This is Course Correction from the Doha Debates. I'm Nelifah Hidayat. Each episode, will look at one big global problem and meet the people who are actively working to fix it. We're well, not just a podcast. We also put on a series of live debates with speakers who have inspiring ideas about how to change the world. Unlike other debates, we try to build bridges between people with different opinions, not pit them against each other. We're looking for what connects us rather than what divides us. And we want to focus on the solutions. Our first debate tackled the global refugee crisis. Now, it's an enormous challenge that threatens to divide our world. And it's a deeply personal issue for me and my family because 24 years ago, we fled war in Afghanistan and sought refuge in the UK. Today, there are 25 million refugees in the world. That's like the entire population of Australia. All of these refugees have been forced to leave their homes, their communities, their families, only to be met with uncertainty. They don't know where they'll end up, which country will take them in, or how they'll rebuild their lives when they finally get there. At the debate, each of our three speakers presented a possible path forward for solving the crisis. All those people are human beings, like all of us. They fled difficult situations just because they believe in a better life. Why? We label them and sometimes judge them in a negative way at the time those people want hope.
1: I would suggest, first of all, find the very clear line between people fleeing for their lives from war zones and people fleeing economic deprivation. Find and hold to a very clear line on it. If you do not, I predict with absolute certainty that you will continue to erode public sympathy with people who need sympathy the most. We must also consider the crisis of memory. Far too often, The people clamoring to close the borders forget that they themselves were beneficiaries of openness, either as former refugees or otherwise desperate immigrants looking for new possibilities in a new land. Rather than closing the door behind us once we've safely passed through the door, we must do the difficult but necessary work of creating sites of safety for those who come after us.
0: That last speaker was Mark Lamont Hill. Mark is an award-winning American journalist who's worked as a commentator on both Fox News and CNN. He's also a professor of media at Temple University and was named one of America's 100 most influential black leaders. During the debate, Mark highlighted the important role bigotry plays in reactions to the global refugee crisis.
1: Simply put, we live in a world where we believe that some lives are inherently worth more than others. This belief undergirded by white supremacy, Orientalism, Islamophobia, and anti-Semitism allows us to view some lives as worthy of protection and others as disposable.
0: I wanted to talk with Mark a little more about the role of racism in the crisis, the West's moral responsibility, and the importance of the language we use when we talk about refugees. If we look at refugees in particular, how does race play into the refugee crisis that's affecting the world globally right now?
1: I mean, a big part of it is even how we decide who is a refugee and who isn't and under what circumstances. In the United States, uh, sometimes we'll use the term, domestically, we'll use the term refugee for people who we actually want to take care of as opposed to people we don't. So after Hurricane Katrina, there were people who we called refugees when they were looking for food, and then they were white. And then the black folk we called looters when they were looking for food in the same water. Um, Globally, sometimes the term refugee becomes a way to think about who's worthy of protection and who's not. So if someone is from Russia or 2000s Kosovo, we can say, okay, these people need our help. Then there are ways that darker-hued refugees, people from, say, Darfur or uh, Muslims, people from, say, Syria or or, or Somalia will, will say, well, do they share our values? Are we safe? Are they a security threat? Even none of the evidence suggests they are. Race often, shapes, colors even, uh, how we talk about uh, who they are and what they deserve.
0: To that effect then, are there deemable good refugees and bad refugees and immigrants? And what do we mean when we use those terms very loosely? The, the Language is so important here.
1: Absolutely, I mean, in my political imagination, I'd say there's no such thing as a good or a bad refugee. You're just a refugee. And you're a refugee because of a set of processes that are always outside of your sphere of control. You know, if you're in Syria, you're not a refugee because you decided to be a refugee. You're, 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 the, you're the victim of decades of internal and global policies. Um, for me, that's the key. But to me, the idea of good and bad or acceptable or unacceptable isn't the right framework. Unfortunately, we either use that language explicitly or we smuggle it in through other, through other means when we talk about the process. So for example, we talk about people who will be burdens on our economy. Oh, we can't let them in, they will be a burden on We can't let these Mexicans into the United States, they will be a burden on our economy, they'll steal the jobs. You know, this becomes the language we use to really say they're not the right kind of immigrants. Um, in, um, in other countries, say for example, in, uh, in, uh, in France, we'll say, well, what do we do with these Algerians? I don't know, will they disrupt our way of life? Um, what does that mean? It means, are they going to change our Eurocentric white supremacist?" Christian-centered norms of how the world should operate. But
0: to be fair, if we just let everybody in because they don't like where they live or they think that where they live isn't good enough, then yeah. that is unsustainable. I don't care if you're Europe or America or the global north. So, so, so the idea of good and bad refugees might be ideologically troubling, but in reality, we need it.
1: Well, you don't, need, you don't need a distinction between good, between good and bad. You just need sustainable policies. You could, you could make the case that they're all worthy of getting in, but we don't have a sustainable uh, framework for letting every single person in the world through the border. I would disagree with the idea that everybody who doesn't like their country wants to leave. Most people don't want to leave their country <laughs> just because it sucks. <laughs> there are, a lot of people are really upset about Donald Trump right now. And they're not, trying to, they're not looking to Canada. It is a good case for doing it. But they're not, right? Most people stay. People leave when the conditions are so dire, so urgent, so pressing, that they're left with little choice. So, so, when, so those people who then leave and want to come to a place, if we say, well, there's not enough room for all of you, cool. But what do we do about it? If we say every person from Syria can't come here, what can we do to redress the policies of the Assad regime in Syria? And we've had opportunities to. When we've literally, whether it's changing the red line, whether it's, whether it's giving a hands-off approach, whether it's in, in, in other decades actually funding the project, there are things that we've done to create that. So we, now we have to do work to undo that. It's not enough to create a problem and say, well, I, I, don't, I can't fix it, right? I can't set the house on fire and say, well, I don't have any water.
0: But this idea, I mean, like of, of, of collective guilt that Americans should feel for what happened in America during slavery or what Europeans should feel um, of what happened in the 20th century with the two world wars and xenophobia, The idea that Germans are responsible now for what happened with their ancestors, we cannot use those excuses to justify an open border policy now. We just can't. That concept itself is inherently wrong, surely.
1: I agree. That's that's why I wouldn't make that argument. I think it's an ethical responsibility, not just a historical one. Although I I do think they're linked. And um, One is those who have more should do more because they have more. You know, I I would love the Jordanian government to do more for uh, Palestinians, for example. Um, But they do a whole lot. I'm not sure how much more Jordan could do. Do I think that the United States or, or the UK should play a larger role? Yes, partly because of the, the historical record, to be sure, but also because there are more resources and more space and they have a more direct impact on policy.
0: How important is language when we're talking about refugees?
1: Um, language is, is key. Again, um, the, the use of particular terms can spotlight someone's humanity, their worthiness, um, the need to invest in them or it can make them disposable and so it's very important for us to use language that is humanizing and that invokes possibility mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that's key and throughout history again many groups have been looked at as social burdens and problems whether it's the black Irish in the United States whether it's Eastern European Jews they they've, there's been a language of of, of burden uh, that was unfair to them mm-hmm. um, it becomes uh, anti-human it becomes anti-semitic it becomes at times now, anti-Muslim, xenophobic more broadly. We have to change the, the approach or else we'll continue to replicate throughout history the same problem. So in, in Europe today, what we see is something not unlike what we saw in the 19th and 18th century with different populations. And we seem to be committed not to changing the rea- that practice, but to simply making sure we're not the ones on the wrong end of the equation. And that, I think, is a fundamental problem.
0: What is the problem with calling somebody illegal or an alien?
1: When we refer to people as legal versus illegal, Mm. when it comes to the question of refugees, it's very easy to lose sight of their humanity. It's very easy to lose sight of their identity as people. And when you begin to refer to people as alien, literally something foreign, something outside of our social universe, our social sphere, um, when we refer to people as illegals as opposed to humans, Um, It becomes very easy to deploy policies and actions against them that are unconscionable. It's easy to throw them away. They become nobody.
0: So then, Mark, why are pro-refugee rights groups so woefully unsuccessful at speaking truth or bringing the facts across to the general public? Why is the discourse so easily hijacked?
1: Yeah. Why are
0: we so bad at this?
1: We've been bad at it for a long time. Why are we bad at it? And I've been trying to figure out why. You know, let's think bigger and across a a wider sweep of history. I think those in power um, within particular nation states or globally, if you think across nation state borders, have a vested interest in having an exploited class. There's a vested interest in having people who are at the bottom rung of the social ladder. That's simply a reality. And the language that we use to frame that normalizes those relationships. That's how we that's how you have people voting for Donald Trump voting for a billionaire who wants to create policies to make more billionaires, right? Knowing that almost no one's gonna be a billionaire. But they bought into an idea and a dream that is more important to them than creating a certain kind of equality. Because we've normalized not just the idea that there'll be a gap between who has and who doesn't have, but that it would be almost wrong to create equality for everybody. That's somehow anti-democratic or anti-American.
0: If we just take a second to just like really absorb what you just said, the idea in, in, in developed Western, uh, the global North, of equality is wrong. That's a powerful thing you're saying. Yes. I mean, that's insane.
1: And it's terrifying, but that's what keeps, continues to happen, and we're moving in the wrong direction. So why
0: is the left so palpably bad at dealing with this
1: language, at
0: dealing with the situation? It's
1: a, but I don't think it's a question of, of, of dealing with it. I think it's a question of power dynamics. The people who are best funded the people the, the, the ruling class has the ability to create the signs, to create the school, to create the curriculum, to create the, to, to produce the political parties and so we have wonderful language we have, I think we got a pretty damn persuasive and compelling argument on the left. The problem is we don't necessarily have the same space. It's not opposite sides of the same coin. So we're fighting against the machine. We're not the machine. And so we're at the gra- grassroots level trying to push back, trying to grow a movement that can be louder and stronger. But we're actually challenging what counts as common sense. The average person believes that there has to be, that there is a natural uh, reality of rich people and poor people, of, of billionaires and, and people who, who, who make, you know, barely living wages, if, if that that's, the, that's common sense to people. Mm-hmm. It's common sense that, that rich people are gonna be president. It's common sense that some people are gonna have to flee the country. We're not just picking between A or B, Democrat or Republican or, or Lacoud versus labor or whatever, wherever you are, it, it, it's not that simple. I'll give you an example. In the United States, I voted green. I've been a su- supporter of the Green Party for about two decades. I can com- it's much easier for me to convince a black person to vote Republican than it is to convince them to vote green they say, yeah, but I only have two choices. Right. Getting them to imagine a third is almost impossible because to them, common sense within the United States context is that there are only two parties. So getting them to dream outside of the norm is a significant challenge. And you could say to me, well, the Green Party has the right language. They have the right agenda. Mm-hmm. Everything lines up. I was up.
0: just about to tell, say that to well, you.
1: Why aren't yeah. people voting for her? Yes. It's because people have been told that it's not possible. It's just just not possible. And if people are told that something's not possible, then then, then they often can't think outside of it.
0: How important and crucial is the role of the media when it comes to framing incredibly important and seismic debates like, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement or the refugee crisis?
1: Yeah, I mean, the media is of critical importance uh, trying to make sense of the social world in general. I mean, it, it tells us what stories matter, and what stories don't. Just by what gets covered, we, we have a sense of whose life is worth covering, mm-hmm. whose life is worth covering. And then within the coverage, it helps us understand the terms of debate. We, we can decide what, what, what's worth fighting for and what's not, uh, what's, what's changeable and what's not. Um, and the media framing in many ways limits, it can expand possibilities, but it often limits possibilities for how we can understand something. So, for example, with Black Lives Matter, um, it was incredibly important, I think, um, in 2014 uh, to see, after the shootings in Ferguson, to see Black Lives Matter highlighted. Now, they sometimes misrepresented the leadership of Black Lives Matter, which I think was important to highlight. Um, Oftentimes, media didn't talk about the fact that it was three women of color, two of whom were queer, identified. That's significant. That's a seismic shift in how we understand uh, leadership in the United States. Yes. Important stuff not getting highlighted. So on the one hand, the media gave us a window into Black Lives Matter and normalized the phrase Black Lives Matter, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, we squandered opportunities to have a deeper, more nuanced conversation about leadership, about power, and about what was at stake for Black Lives Matter, which wasn't just stopping police from shooting us. It was much deeper than that.
0: Now, increasingly, we've seen the global refugee crisis being hijacked by politics and political groups and parties, that politicization of the refugee crisis, it, it has a lot of effects. And I just wanted to yeah, get your thoughts on yeah, what that yeah, does. Yeah.
1: It has a lot of effects because it makes them a political football rather than a, a site of investment and a site of, of urgency at the, at, the, at the humanitarian level. It becomes a question of, well, Donald Trump's against it, so I have to be for it. Uh, or um, Merkel is for it, so I have to be against it. And and when we frame things in that way, um, as, as political issues rather than substantive human issues, I think it gets into very dangerous territory because oftentimes the choices we're making about whether or not to embrace a policy or not aren't informed by the economic or social or cultural climate, right. but by a very particular agenda in a nation state. and and that can't be the driving force anymore.
0: Are politicians irresponsible with the way that they talk about the refugee crisis?
1: You could have just stopped with are politicians irresponsible? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, and yes.
0: So then let me ask you again, why have subsequent democratic and liberal governments within Europe, uh, America, the global north been so woefully unsuccessful at, at talking about these positive aspects or the investment needed in refugees? Why are successive governments so bad at this?
1: I'm saying that it might be impossible within the current framework of government and politics to have a robust and healthy Um, approach to the refugee crisis. So then what do we do? We change our approach to government and politics. We change the framework. We reimagine what the world could look like because we're always going to be unsuccessful at creating equality within power structures that demand and feed off of inequality.
0: So one of the things that I find really interesting in, in the work that you've done on otherness that you speak a lot about is this idea of linking violence, intolerance, otherness to specific groups, and that language seems to be pervasive. So whether we're talking about um, Nigerian economic migrants coming to Europe, or Syrians, or my home country, Afghanistan, people coming to Western Europe, or Salvadorians, Venezuelans coming into America, they all seem to be intolerant, have a completely different way of life to us, um, and are violent. And almost the same language is used when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, or Momentum, or progressive groups. Where is this coming from and how do we battle that?
1: I think there's, I think there's two things. I, I, I think one, there is a deeply rooted fear of, of otherness, of black and brown people in particular. Other kinds of otherness matter too, like uh, Muslimness, even if you're a, a white Muslim, right? There's still something about that thing. Right. But I would argue it's because they're linking you <laughs> to black and brown people. Right. And, and I think there's a deep-seated fear of that. And so, there's no, and so that fear almost makes it impossible to see our humanity. And so whether it's a movement that asserts that black lives matter or something, which should not be really that controversial, black lives matter, right? Um, or whether it's a social policy that says we need to provide food to people who are hungry or, or shelter to people who are homeless, because we have it mm-hmm. um, becomes something that people just aren't easy with because they wanna know what's next. Um, But I think there's a broader and more overarching problem of white supremacy. And I think people want to hold on to whiteness. There's a wonderful book, classic book, written in 1935 by W.E.B. Du Bois. And he's talking about the the Reconstruction period after slavery. And he asked the question, why would a white uh, uh, worker not want to end slavery? If you're a white worker, you should want slavery to end too. Because if there's a slave, then clearly you're never going to get the right wage because there's someone who's doing it for nothing. Unfortunately, he said the white worker sides with the planner, the bosses, the managerial class. He said not because it makes economic sense, but because they accumulate what he called the psychic wages of whiteness, almost whiteness as a kind of property. I want to hold on to whiteness and, 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 and close ranks around that rather than my own economic interests. If you can get people to do that during slavery, if you can get people to do that when they vote Bush or Trump. If you can get people to constantly imagine that their lot is, it should be cast with their race, mm. rather than their actual material realities, you can get people to do anything. And that's where we are right now.
0: Mark Lamont Hill, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure. <laughs> so what do we do? The million dollar question that all academics hate to answer. We must resist. We must address each of these crises with the belief that organized people can and do defeat organized power. That means we vote, we march, we think, we boycott, we teach, we write, we sing, we debate, all in ways that undermine the current power structure and create the possibility for freedom and safety for refugees around the world. Thank you. So very kindly.
0: That's all for our show today. To watch the full live debate, go to YouTube, search for Doha Debates. You can see all of the speakers' proposed solutions and tell us what you think. What are your ideas about ways we can improve the situation of refugees everywhere? We want to hear from you. Tweet us at Doha Debates. Join us for our next episode of Course Correction from Doha Debates, wherever you get your podcasts. Course Correction is written and hosted by me, Nelifah Hedayat. The show is produced by Doha Debates and Transmitter Media. Doha Debates is a production of Qatar Foundation. Special thanks to our team at Doha Debates, JFoot Weeks, Amjad Atallah, and Jega Mehta. This episode was mixed by Ben Shano. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. It helps other people find us. Join us for the next episode of Course Correction wherever you get your podcasts.